Good evening. The Lord be with you. It's good to have you all here tonight uh, on a cold and wet evening. It seems like it was just a couple weeks ago that we had 75 degree weather on Christmas Eve with thunderstorms. So we are now fully into winter and I'm glad that you've made it and I hope that the drive was not treacherous. I think we're safely going to be above freezing at least uh, until quite a bit after uh, this class ends, unless I go really long, but that's not going to happen. Um, so in either case, I'm so glad you guys are here and brave the elements to be with us. We might be a little smaller in number tonight uh, for that very reason, uh, but we're glad that we're gathered. Uh, many of you, of course, have been here on previous weeks, and we are, as always, grateful for the return business uh, for you guys being here. If you've missed a week, if you've missed a week, uh, as you know, uh, the audio podcasts of these lectures are posted thanks to our wonderful communications team, uh, typically just a few days uh, after the lecture. So if you've missed a week or want to go back and rehear something, uh, you can go to our website uh, and, and download the audios. As I've said before, we'll, we're going to package the whole course, including video, lecture outlines, and discussion questions as a kind of a standalone class in the weeks following the conclusion. Uh, so take a, uh, be aware of that. Um, as always, we've got um, great food and coffee in the, back, uh, in the back, and many thanks to, to Dottie Hitchcock for those arrangements and for uh, Mary Ellen who picked up the coffee. Um, I consider picking up the coffee one of the, uh, the noblest tasks uh, for Theology Matter, so I'm grateful <laughs> for that. Um, As many of you know, this course, uh, this, uh, the Ten Commandments, or Rediscovering the Ten Commandments, is part of, of First Pres's Theology Matters program. Uh, this is an initiative intended to bring seminary-level theological education uh, to the church in a format that's accessible, engaging, and hopefully relevant uh, to a lay audience. And I hope the uh, first few weeks of this class has proven, proven that to be the case. Uh, Theology Matters is our way of taking seriously God's call to each of us uh, to love God with all of our heart, souls, and minds. Uh, so we are grateful uh, that you are here. Um, we, because of the high level of this class, our, our content is, is very serious in many regards, and we have to do some heavy lifting intellectually to wrap our minds around uh, this material. But I hope, of course, that we can have a little bit of fun along the way. So uh, in light of that, I thought I'd begin tonight by taking a look at a few uh, New Yorker cartoons uh, that feature the Ten Commandments. A few New Yorker cartoons. Some of you get this magazine that features the Ten Commandments. Um, now, a question, um, this might be a question that many of you have wondered. Are these the top ten commandments? Are they in order? Are there more? Are these just the top ten? Uh, this next cartoon is probably a bit more uh, true than we would like. They broke all the commandments, Lord. Can they have some more? This seems to be appropriate for the uh, place where we are with the NFL season. I think one of those tablets seemed to be cut a little bit differently. Uh, this is also, this next one's appropriate in light of the coming Valentine's season. And a little something for the wife, the caption says. We've, uh, the Bible considers at length how Moses ascended Mount Sinai, all the various trips he took to get up to the top of the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, but it says a little, bit, a little about how Moses came down. Uh, this cartoon shed some light on that. Uh, for those of you who tend to maybe read a Kindle or an iPad in bed, uh, this one might appeal to you. 
the alternative place where Moses uh, chiseled the Ten Commandments. And then finally, um, an interesting take on the not-so-public display of the Ten Commandments in the courtroom. I'm wearing my Ten Commandments boxers, uh, the one judge <laughs> says <laughs> to the other. And I think these are supposed to be Supreme Court judges, but I'm not sure if they uh, can be identified uh, or not. So with that, uh, let us pray and we'll begin our first session. God, we're grateful to be gathered. We're grateful for the safety and the warmth of this place and are mindful of many of our neighbors and friends uh, who do not have such protection and warmth tonight. We pray that you would be with them and provide whatever they need in this moment. We pray that you would open our hearts, our minds, as we consider your word and think more deeply about the lasting value of your Ten Commandments. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, let's more officially begin. Session five, taking the Lord's name in vain. In this and the next session, uh, remember there are two sessions tonight, in this and the next session, we'll be looking at commandments three through five, taking the Lord's name in vain, keeping Sabbath, and honoring parents. They're the three commandments we'll be taking a look at today. Taken together, these three commandments function as a type of bridge that link together the worship focused commandments that we studied last week with the community-studied commandments that we'll take a look at next week. And you'll see that in each of these three commandments, there's an element of worship, or there's an element of God in them, but there's also a communal element in them. So these three form as a, a type of bridge between the earlier and the latter commandments. Uh, while the content of these commandments, I find, are very often familiar to many Christians, how many of you certainly know, honor your father and mother, what I also find to be the case is that sometimes their ongoing relevance is less clear to the church today. What, in fact, does it mean to take the Lord's name in vain? What does that mean for us today? And what about the Sabbath? Does that still apply to us today? And that honor uh, the parent commandment, certainly any parent with kids hopes that that still is relevant today. And so we're going to lift up some of those questions about the ongoing relevance of these commandments, but in order to do so, we'll have to look back a little bit and think, as we always do, about the original meaning of these commandments and some of the history and theology that lie just beneath the surface to help us understand what these commandments were trying to get at in their original context. But before doing that, before diving into the third commandment, we need to circle back to an issue uh, that we started to talk about last week, or kind of uh, pointed toward last week, but we didn't really get to. And that is the question of uh, whether the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, should be displayed publicly, such as in a courthouse or on the lawn of a, of a, a town hall or something like that. Should the Ten Commandments be displayed publicly? And so what we'll do is we'll talk a little bit about the history of this question and then offer something of a response biblically uh, to, to the debate. So this issue of the public display of the Ten Commandments um, has uh, uh, garnered a good deal of controversy and maybe has produced a little more heat than light in recent years. Uh, but the impulse to di publicly display the Ten Commandments in and of itself is not a new one. As far as I can tell, the first impulse or initiative to display the Ten Commandments publicly can be traced back to 1943. At that time, a Minnesota juvenile court judge named E.G. Uh, Rugemer decided that the troubled youth in his court 
needed, and here I quote, or I should say, could benefit from, quote, exposure to one of mankind's earliest codes of conduct, the Ten Commandments. So the initial idea to display the Ten Commandments came from the practical frustration that this judge had with the sorts of cases he saw in his juvenile court. So Judge Rugemer took matters into his own hand. Now he was a member of an, uh, an, a society that still exists today called the Fraternal Order of Eagles. Is anyone familiar with that society, the Fraternal Order of Eagles? It's actually still quite prominent today and actually played a, a big role in a variety of different things and believe it or not, even in the initiation of Social Security. So, but that's another story. But as a member of the FOE, or the Fraternal, Fraternal Order of Eagles, he helped initiate a national campaign whereby local chapters of the FOE would donate plaques of the Ten Commandments to courthouses and uh, town, town halls and the like all throughout Canada and the US. That was in 1943. By 1954, Guess how many plaques of the Ten Commandments had been distributed? 10,000. The FOE distributed 10,000 plaques. Before this, uh, there would have been very, it would have been very rare to have seen the Ten Commandments in any kind of public setting. But this marked a, a very a important turning point. Now, not, this didn't occur, uh, occasion much controversy for a really long time. Fifty years passed, actually, without much being said of this. But in 1998, the ACLU claimed on behalf of two residents of Elkhart, Indiana, one of the towns that received the wooden plaques from the FOE, that the display of the monument, of the Ten Commandments monument, on governmental property con constituted a violation of the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment of the Constitution. That is, it violated a principle in their interpretation of, not, of the government not establishing religion. Now, the courts, in this case, originally favored um, against, or, or ruled against the ACLU. That is, they allowed the commandments um, to, to or the plaques to stay up. But this decision was later overturned in the Court of Appeals. In 2001, the Supreme Court refused to hear the case, leaving two things evident. One, there was a precedent clearly in place by 2001 to display the Ten Commandments publicly, and yet, two, the legality of doing so was not yet fully resolved, at least not at a national level. And this brings us then to the very interesting case of uh, Judge Roy Moore, a Supreme Court, uh, Alabama State Supreme Court Justice. Anyone know of, of Roy Moore, have heard of him before? Here he is, by the way. Heard him? He's actually re-elected. He's actually currently now also still the Alabama State Supreme Court uh, Justice, uh, but we'll say why he had to be re-elected and is not still in his original position. Months after being elected to Alabama Supreme Court, Judge Moore commissioned a 5,280-pound granite monument of the Ten Commandments, about four feet tall and three feet wide. Um, he thought uh, that it was appropriate to have this commandment, this display of the commandments in the Alabama State, uh, in the rotunda of the Alabama State Supreme Court building. Now, Judge Moore had done this in the past. As a circuit judge years before, he had this little plaque of the Ten Commandments that he would take with him into whatever court he served in and would hang it behind the bench. And so once he became Supreme Court judge in Alabama, he thought a bigger monument was needed. But he knew that it wouldn't go over so well. 
So he actually moved in this 5,280-pound granite monument uh, into the Supreme Court rotunda at night, once everyone had left on July 1st of 2001. Now, three months later, in October of 2001, the ACLU brings a lawsuit against uh, Judge Moore in Glasroth v. Moore. And within a year, a federal U.S. District Judge, Myron Thompson, issued his ruling against Moore, saying that this monument did, in fact, violate the, the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. Uh, Judge Moore refused to comply with the order to remove the monument. Eventually, the monument had to be forcibly removed, and uh, Judge Moore himself was actually removed from his position as Supreme Court Justice of Alabama. Now, despite this kind of controversy, you think this would look bad on, on, on uh, Judge Moore, he, um, had a, he nearly became the governor of Alabama in 2006. He actually made a, a, a Republican, he was a Republican nominee for the president in 2012, and he's recently been reelected uh, to the court. Um, so public opinion has actually sided with Roy Moore, at least in Alabama, um, even as the justices have decided against him. Now, what do we make of all of this? Here's when I want to get to a few more details. Moore and others uh, who want to display the Ten Commandments make two primary arguments. And if you listen closely, they're actually completely contradictory. The first ar argument that they make is that the establishment cause of the First Amendment of the Constitution does not prohibit all association of government with religion. So they say, look, this is a religious document, but the Establishment Clause allows for some association of the government with religion as long as it's not mandating uh, that you follow it. That is, it's not, strictly speaking, establishing it. Now, by and large, this is a constitutional argument. Roy Moore and others would say, look, this already happens on our coins, in God we trust, or in our own Pledge of Allegiance, one nation under God, they already suggest that there is some association of government and religion, so why can't this just be another example where the government is associated with religion? Again, this is mostly a constitutional argument, and, I, and that's actually above my pay grade, so I'm going to leave that particular argument aside and turn to their second claim. Second, and somewhat con conversely, they claim that it is possible to read the Ten Commandments as a secular code of ethics. That is to say, you can read the Ten Commandments from a completely secular perspective without any religious affiliation and understand its universal value for good citizenship. Now that, again, it seems a bit contradictory because the first argument presumes that it is a religious document, but that's okay. In the second argument, it seems to be that, that it's not a religious document. But I want to respond to this second point and, and really raise the question, can the Decalogue be read as a secular or universal code of ethic? And my response is strictly a biblical one, not a constitutional one. So I'm a little bit more at home in these, uh, in these ideas. On the one hand, I think we have to admit that there's something to be said. There's something to be said for this argument. Remember we talked about the general or apodictic form of the Ten Commandments. It suggests that they did have some universal value. Thou shalt not murder does, in some sense, seem to have some universal value. Uh, appeal, even if you're not Jewish or Christian or whatever. That, that seems like a generally good thing not to do, to murder. So I concede that point. Also, Commandments 5 through 10 
do generally seem to be broadly applicable and not deeply rooted in matters of religion, at least not as stated. One could say, thou shalt not steal without any particular religious commitment. That also seems um, to be the case. And surely the Ten Commandments uh, have grown to have a life of their own beyond the church and the synagogue. If you remember from the first week, we talked about the Ten Commandments in music, in movies, in books. All of that was essentially non-religious in some level. So for all those reasons, we might be inclined to say, sure, we can read the Ten Commandments in some secular fashion and not from a religious perspective. However, I think there are significant problems that weigh more heavily against this argument. First, the prologue that we talked about, I am the Lord you God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, seems to me to establish an essential connection between the commandments and a very particular covenant, and I would add a very particular God. What Israel uh, must do flows out of what God has done for Israel. The motivation for keeping commandments flows directly from something religious, something God had done for a particular people. It, it would be hard, in my opinion, to somehow detach the Ten Commandments from, it, uh, from the prologue and how it sets up what these commandments are to be all about. Second, it seems undeniable and, and unavoidable that the content of some of the commandments is explicitly religious. It, it would be hard to make the claim that the first two commandments are secular. You should have no other gods beside me, and you shall not make idols. How could you read them possibly in a secular fashion? I would add to the third commandment the same idea. Do not use the Lord's name in vain. I would be hard-pressed to come up with a secular reading or interpretation of that commandment. The Sabbath commandment, I think, is also very similarly deeply rooted in religious practice. Now, maybe if one made the argument that only the latter six, uh, beginning with uh, parents and moving then to all the way to coveting, maybe you could make the case that they are somehow secular and the others are religious, but I've never seen a monument in a courthouse that only has commandments five through 10 and not commandments one through four. If I did, I might be okay with it. But not really, because even the six latter commandments are interconnected to the life of who Israel is with respect to God. Third, and this is, I think, the most important point, it is notable that the Bible itself takes absolutely no interest in the public display of the Ten Commandments. Not once in the Bible is there any mention of the Ten Commandments being publicly displayed. In fact, as a point of trivia, where are the Ten Commandments kept? I can't remember if we had talked about this in earlier weeks or not. And, and who has access to the Ark of the Covenant? Is that like a nice open display case that everyone sees on the way to the Starbucks? The Ark is in the Holy of Holies. Who can enter the Holy of Holies? Only the high priest. How often can the high priest enter the Holy of Holies? Once a year. Is the Ark ever opened? No. Well, the, yeah, there's a lot of great uh, legend about what happened to the, uh, to the Ark of the Covenant. And if you're interested in that fact, rent Indiana Jones, uh, <laughs> uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, because that Ark, in fact, is the Ark of the Bible in that story. And it's, it's but the spoiler alert, it's the Nazis who took it. Um, so, here's the irony. Biblically speaking, the Decalogue is the least publicly displayed piece of writing that we have. 
Other laws are displayed more publicly in the Bible, and the Decalogue is never displayed that way. And fourth, and finally, the fight for the display of the Ten Commandments often, I think, overshadows a concern for their content. And this, to me, is actually the most problematic point. I've never seen a monument in one of these buildings that exhibits the full text. It's always some short synopsis of the Ten Commandments. So you're never getting the full picture anyway, even if you were to go into one of these buildings and read it. But second, those who advocate most strongly for the public display of the Ten Commandments all too often don't know what the Ten Commandments actually say. And so I want to show a video, and I have to thank Webb Cochran for passing this along to me. This is a video um, from the uh, Colbert Report, and here Colbert is interviewing Lynn Westmoreland from the Georgia's 8th District, uh, who co-sponsored a bill requiring the display of the Ten Commandments in the House of Representatives in the, in the Senate. And here, uh, you'll see what happens. This is a real interview. We're a better place because you have something like that than in a judicial building or in a courthouse. That is a good question. Can you think of any better building for that? <laughs> I think if we were totally without them, we may lose a sense of our direction. What are the <laughs> okay, I think you get the gist of what happens here. Now, I feel a little bad, a bit, uh, bad for the congressman here um, to be put on the spot in such a way, but I think it does highlight a bigger point, that the concern for the public display <coughs> often comes at the expense of actually studying the Ten Commandments knowing their content, let alone knowing what they mean and how they apply. In fact, I would argue, and I would go one step further, and this is why I would have included it last week had I managed my time better. Um, I would say, ironically, the public display of the Ten Commandments, without a concern for its content, which I think by and large is the issue, reduces the Decalogue not to a text, but to an image. And one might go one step further and say, it makes the Decalogue an idol. And so ironically, the fight to display the Ten Commandments might in fact break one of the commandments that is listed in the Decalogue, thou shalt not make idols. Now of course the Decalogue is not an idol in the way that the ancient Near Eastern readers of this text thought of idols, and yet it is something that consumes our attention and draws our loyalty in a way that brings us, to me it seems, further away from Scripture. And that, in the end, I think could fairly be called an idol. So, that, I think, is the biblical perspective. There is still the constitutional issue. And again, I will um, leave that to another course or to another uh, lecturer 
to address. Let me just pause here just to see if there's any questions about this particular issue of public display, and then we'll move on uh, to the whole issue of the Lord's name in vain. Well, Judge. It's not Well, this is another issue. That's right. And do you include the prologue? Uh, uh, Judge Roy Moore's Decalogue does not include the prologue, which actually, I would argue, drastically changes your interpretation of what the Decalogue is. How do you number? Which tradition do you follow? Do you follow the version in Exodus or the version in Deuteronomy? They're close, but as we'll see today, they're not exactly the same, and sometimes those differences make a difference. Bruce. It, there is a correspondence, although I don't think it's causal. That is to say, this initiative began in 1943. By 54, 10,000 plaques have been distributed, and I believe that 56 is the release of Cecil B. DeMille's Ten Commandments. So it's, it happens at a similar time. Now, what I don't know, Bruce, is whether somehow this movement to display the Ten Commandments actually played a role in saying, hey, we should produce a movie on the Ten Commandments. Uh, my guess is it goes in that direction rather than the other direction, just because of the dates. All right, well, there's more we could talk about, I'm sure, and I'd be happy to continue the conversation in our break, but I want to turn then uh, more specifically to Commandment 3. Um, I want to just read it first um, and then make a few comments. So, Commandment 3, you shall not make, now I'm quoting from the NRSV, and that's going to be important in a minute to say that. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. So a couple things to note here just initially. One, the content here uh, that I have is from Exodus 27, but the, same, the content is identical in the Deuteronomy version. So this is a case where there's no discrepancy between the articulation of the two versions of the Decalogue. The second thing to note I think that's important is this. There's a motivation clause attached to it that seems to imply this commandment is pretty serious. For the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. The stakes are high, in other words, for getting this commandment right. And yet, my question for you all tonight is what activity, in fact, is prohibited by not using the Lord's name in vain? What, in fact, is prohibited? I was going to do this as a, as a TAPS, but I thought we might just do it as a group activity. What, just, what comes to your mind? Now, don't say the word you, you shouldn't say, but what sorts of words shouldn't you say? This, we need to have some bleeps here, John, on our tape. Um, what, sh what does this mean? What shouldn't you say? Ah, so oath-making. Great idea. We're going to come back to that. I think that's a, a very solid possibility. It has something to do officially with connecting God's name to an oath. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes there are like Christian groups that aren't Christian. Uh -huh. Sometimes they're not Yeah, like hi hypocrisy or, or some sort of like inconsistency. I always think this when I'm commuting in Atlanta, and you know what that's like. And I pass those cars that have those nice like love God and love neighbor stickers on it, and they've just cut me off. 
on 400? Yeah, I think about the third commandment. I, I violate several commandments, and then I think about the third commandment. <laughs> yeah, Bill. Yeah. Aha, aha. Okay. Yeah. So that's an, so maybe something about kind of um, either offensive speech or just even kind of uh, overly informal or casual ways of dealing with God's name. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah, Brian. Okay. Yes. Yeah. 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 And that's, I think that's connected in some ways to the oath idea that Jeff brings up, that it's, maybe it's kind of entangling God's name in something that's false or untrue or intentionally misleading. Yeah, good. Let me take one more, and then we're going to jump over here. Uh, Walter. Okay, right. So this is a big one, right? Um, it just, it's, it's foul language, right? It's cursing, cussing. Right? It's, and that could involve words, cuss words that, that include God's name very explicitly, and I won't go through them. I think you can, can think about what I mean. Or maybe it's just other words that we would include, other curse words or foul language. Even if it doesn't reference God's name, we might think of that in some way as in view. Well, this controversy about what exactly this means is actually borne out in the various English translations of this commandment. Of all the commandments, and looking at all the English translations, or at least a lot of the common ones, no commandment shows more variety and discrepancy in the English versions than this particular commandment. And there, there's, I think, I counted maybe 16 different ways of translating this in the English. I think you can group them into three categories. And I want to name those three categories as a way of thinking about what, in fact, might be prohibited. So the first actually comes from the very uh, traditional reading that we inherit from the KJV, using the Lord's name in vain. Does that language sound familiar? That in vain language? Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. It's the KJV, but it's followed by the uh, NASB, New American Standard Bible. It's followed by the ESV. And actually many translation traditions follow the KJV in using the language of in vain. Vain. Now, there's something to be said for this translation. The word they're translating in vain in Hebrew, lashava, uh, it, it, it can mean worthless, futile, inconsequential, which to me are synonyms with in vain. I get that. that. That makes sense to me. But it also begs the question, what does it mean to use a name in vain? What actually does that mean? Well, the very common and popular way of understanding this is that using a name in vain implies bad language, casual, overly casual language, or, in fact, cursing. This is particularly clear in Eugene Peterson's The Message uh, paraphrase of the Bible. And he says, no using the name of God, your God, in curses or silly banter. So I, I think this kind of highlights maybe, Walter, your point about it's just kind of frivolous use. It's, it's even maybe even foul language or bad language. That's what it would mean to use the Lord's name in vain. Bill, I think this echoes your point as well. Um, so that's one possibility, that, that, that to use the Lord's name in vain means to use it in this in curses or silly banter. I think actually a better alternative in, in terms of kind of the, the linguistics and the history involved here 
might imply using the name for some evil purpose, or maybe for falsehood. This is captured, I think, uh, in the Bible in basic English translation, which reads, You are not to make use of the name of the Lord your God for an evil purpose or in connection to falsehood. So it's not about uh, foul language. It's not about kind of um, uh, silly language or flippant language. It's actually very intentionally using God's name in connection to something that is intentionally false or deceptive. Um, this, I think, is also echo echoed in the NRSV, wrongful use of the name, or the New International Version, Reader's Edition, which uh, talks about misusing the name of the Lord. I think there's some good evidence for this as well. The prophets actually very frequently critique people for making false oaths. Here's the false oaths, Jeff. False oaths in the name of the Lord, or making oaths in the name of other God. So there's some sense that, that making an oath is a very solemn, important thing. And to, so to make a false oath and to call on God's name in that oath is a way of kind of entangling God in our lives or using God's name to somehow validate or authorize something that's simply not true or maybe even deceptive or manipulative. Um, the further evidence of this, I think, is found in the fact that the word translated take or use, is actually a Hebrew word that means lift up. The imagery here, I think, I think we're getting a, a shortened version of an original phrase that said something like, you must not lift up your hand and speak falsely against the Lord. Because in ancient Near Eastern art, as in today, it's the lifting up of the hand that's associated with the taking of an oath. So I think what we have here in our Bibles is a shortened version of what was a longer phrase. Don't, it's not lift up the Lord's name, but don't lift up your hand making an oath in connection to the Lord's name, especially when done falsely. Uh, so it, it, it could be a, a, then a matter of lying in court. That is, the place where you make oath is a court setting, so don't, don't swear falsely. But of course, that idea is named very specifically in Commandment 9. Thou shalt not bear false witness. So how do we distinguish then between these two commandments if, if oath-making is in view? Well, I think the answer, and what is more likely, is that this has to do with attaching God's name to an idea, a strategy, or a policy as a way of wielding power. What's of note is that the largest commentary on this commandment falls in narratives about David. Because David is the chief culprit of wielding some divine ideas in his political schemes. So, um, we might connect this to life today, of course, uh, that it might be very relevant to the propensity in politics to today to claim, in the words of Bob Dylan, God's on our side. We even see it within certain uh, well, I would say within all of the political parties, we see this same discourse of very readily claiming that God is on the side of this policy, or God is on the side of this platform. I think in the ancient context, that's a violation of using the Lord's name in vain. Margaret? Uh, well, that's what Judge Wendell was doing. He was using it for political speech. That's right. That's right, yeah, it, that's exactly what it is. I mean, uh, Judge Moore very specifically branded himself as the Ten Commandments judge. And he wrote, I had a picture up there, but he's written a book about this idea of this way as public uh, Ten Commandments in conjunction with his running 
for the Republican nominee. Now, this is not just a Republican problem. It just happens that he was a Republican. I think both sides of the, the political uh, aisle uh, tend to do the same thing in terms of suggesting that God's on our side, not your side. So therefore, vote for us, not for them. I think it's a violation of this commandment. The third option, um, and I think is actually the best one, or at least gets the closest to the original sense, is that to, to what, what's in mind here is not using God's name lightly. Now, the, this is captured in the complete Jewish Bible, which reads, you are not to use lightly uh, the name of Adonai, your God. Or similarly, the Common English Bible says, do not use the, the Lord, your God's name, as if it were of no significance. The Hebrew term here uh, that's used uh, is often a synonym for another word in Hebrew which means profane or common. That is to say, in, it's warning us against using God's name in a way that's the opposite of holiness, in, in a way that's all too common or too frivolous. Uh, to profane the name of God, then, is to do damage to God's reputation or to defame him or to lessen his prestige. What's interesting to note, uh, and, what, and what I like about this lightly idea, is that the word lightly in Hebrew is actually the antonym or the opposite of the word that we often translate as glory. When we are called in the Bible to glorify God, what that literally means in Hebrew is to make God heavier, kaved. To glorify God is to make God heavier. So in this sense then, the opposite of that is to treat God's name lightly. This is a command, I think, in its most original context about not giving proper glory or honor to God's name. I think that's, in my view, is the closest um, uh, to the original context that, that we might get. But now, and I wanna, um, I don't wanna do this. I wanna keep going. We're gonna be a little bit lopsided in our sessions. I wanna finish up the, the third commandment here, which is our longer discussion tonight. All of this still, even outlining these three possible meanings, all of this still raises the additional question, as Romeo put it in Romeo and Juliet, what's in a name? Why so much concern about the name of the Lord and not say the character of the Lord or the presence of the Lord or the power of the Lord or just the Lord? Why not don't make wrongful use of God or don't treat God lightly? Why do you insert the name? Well, Romeo uh, famously says, what's in a name, a rose by any other name would smell as sweet, but when it comes to the Lord's name, Romeo couldn't be any more wrong about the matter. It's all in the name. The name implied here in this commandment, uh, you have the Hebrew up here, is not the generic term God, nor is it even one of the various titles that God receives in the Old Testament, and which I know that all of you know from Amy Grant songs. This is not in reference to El Shaddai, God Almighty, or El Elyon, God Most High, or even El Olam, God Everlasting. What's in mind here when it mentions the name of the Lord is God's personal name, the name revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai, sorry, and by which God was known and worshipped. This was a very special name. This name is called the Tetragrammaton, uh, because in Hebrew it's four letters, so tetra four, it's the four letters, uh, and in English it would be Y-H-W-H. -H. Um, typically spelled out, we say something like Yahweh. Uh, the, the old Latin tradition is to say Jehovah, which is actually a little bit less accurate, but the ancient Hebrew probably would have sounded something more like Yahweh. Uh, it occurs 6,000 times in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, it sometimes is shortened 
to Yah or Yeho. So I often think that uh, Yahweh's, uh, God's business associates uh, knew him by Yahweh, but his friends called him Yah, just like we would call Robert Bob or, or uh, William Bill or something like that. His friends called him Yah. And we actually, we encounter this Yah, these shortened versions of God's name, often as prefixes or suffixes of human names. So, uh, Yehoshua, Joshua, that Yah in the beginning of Yehoshua's name is the shortened form of Yahweh. Or, for instance, Zechariah, that Yah at the end of Zechariah's name, that's the Lord's name. So Joshua means the Lord saves, and Zechariah means Yahweh remembers. Right? These are little sentence names, but they all include these abbreviated forms of God's name. In most English translations, um, Yahweh is, you don't find Yahweh in your Old Testament, if you look in your pew Bibles. What you'll find instead is small caps, L-O-R-D. That's actually different than lowercase L-O-R-D. That goes back to a different Hebrew word. That Hebrew word is Adonai, but when you see the all caps Lord in your Old Testament, you know in the Hebrew then it's actually the tetragrammaton. It's actually the personal name of the Lord. And this just wasn't any way of referring to God. God's name was connected to God's presence and God's power in a very intricate way, in a way that we don't typically think about in terms of names. So, for instance, the temple is described as the place where the Lord's name dwells. God doesn't dwell in the temple, but as a symbol of God's presence, the name dwells in the temple. Uh, we often have the phrase in the Hebrew Bible, blessed not is the Lord, but blessed is the name of the Lord. The name is like a stand-in for God himself, or it's connected to God's power. Uh, in the Psalter, one, one calls on the name of the Lord in prayer, and praise and thanksgiving is always directed toward the name. So the picture I'm trying to paint here is that in the ancient Israelite world, a name wasn't just a name. A name in a very real and tangible way was the, 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 the material presence and power of the deity. So this is significant stuff. This makes sense of why the commandment says, and the Lord's not going to acquit anyone who misuses his name, because essentially it's saying, anyone who misuses my name is essentially misusing me. Right? It's a bigger deal in the ancient world. And so the last thing I want to say about this is that, that all of this background, kind of the significance of the name, is evident and led to the very special treatment of the Lord's name in the Jewish tradition. I just want to kind of give a highlight of some of the ways in the Jewish tradition that the name is treated. Um, first, beginning in the post-exilic period, it became customary to refrain from uttering Yahweh, the Tetragrammaton, outside of the temple. So there was only one place you could say this name. If you were at home having dinner with your family, you couldn't say this name. Not even if you were praying. You could only say this name in the temple. And in fact, later, you couldn't even say the name in the temple. Um, in place of, every time you wanted to say the Lord, in place of that, you would say the word Adonai. That's our lowercase L-O-R-D, right? That's not Yahweh's name. That's more of a title for who Yahweh is. Um, in fact, even in the Hebrew, ancient Hebrew manuscripts, there developed a tradition of writing the Tetragrammaton in a way to remind you not to pronounce it out loud. And instead, every time you saw the Tetragrammaton to say Adonai, as opposed to saying Yahweh. So this name was treated very, very specially. John? So was that in fear of breaking that commandment? 
Absolutely, that, that's absolutely what happened. In the post-exilic period, this third commandment was intensified to the point that people just said, we're just not gonna say the name. Like, we're not gonna mess with misusing God's name. We're just not gonna use that name. So it was kind of a safeguard in that sense against violating the third commandment, in part because it had such a st extreme consequences of what would happen. Now, this actually continues in some other places. In the uh, Old Greek translations of the Old Testament, Yahweh's name is treated very differently than any other name. What the Greek translators did when they looked at Hebrew names, be they names of people or whatever, they simply transliterated it. They found the, the Greek letters that sounded like the Hebrew letters. So uh, they didn't translate the Hebrew name Moses or Moshe, they just used the Greek letters that made the same sound. Same thing with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all these others. But when it came to Yahweh, they didn't transliterate it they translated it. They put it in their, a very different Greek word. So they use words like kyrios and theos, uh, Lord and God. They translate God's name instead of transliterate it so that when Wheezy's reading from the Old Greek, as I know she does in her devotionals, when she's reading from the Old Greek, she doesn't accidentally say out loud Yahweh when she reads the Greek letter. She always reads theos or kyrios. Right? So the special way of translating. Another example is that Qumran, the Jewish community there, they had a very special way of writing God's name. Essentially, if they're writing along, the Qumran scribes who were copying Bible, they would be copying, copying, copying what they saw. But every time they got to the Tetragrammaton, they changed fonts. They started using a different script because that name had to be treated differently than any other word in Hebrew. And I actually have a picture of it. It's a little fuzzier than I would want but I've used these red arrows to show the places where the Lord's name appears. And if you look closely, even if you don't know any Hebrew, you can tell that this font here looks a little bit different, right? Here's another example. Do you see how the font kind of changes? Here it is again. That's the Lord. That's Yahweh. They didn't do that with God. They didn't do that with El Shaddai or El Olam or any of these others. They only did it with Yahweh. They set it apart. In, in uh, later Jewish tradition, um, this practice continued of treating the name uh, with special regard as you wrote it. When a scribe begins writing a name, uh, the name of the Lord, he does not stop until he's finished it. You would never take a break in the middle of writing the name of the Lord. Similarly, if the scribe made an error in writing a name, you know, pen slipped or the like, um, he couldn't simply erase it, but he had, to, he had to draw a line around it to show that it was a mistake, but you couldn't erase the name of the Lord. Likewise, if you, if you wrote the name of the Lord on a piece of paper and you were done with it, you couldn't crumble it up and put it in the trash. It had to be deposited in a very, very special place called a, a Geniza. So even in trash, I, I needed these notes. I, I should have drawn another piece of paper uh, to, to do this very graphic illustration of. Um, so let me, excuse me here a second as I figure this out. Okay. Um, in English use, um, there's also the practice of, of, even though you're not writing the Lord's name, but to remind yourself of the special care taken with the Lord's name, you would sometimes write not G-O-D, but G-D. Have you ever seen that anywhere where people omit a letter? It's a way of kind of setting apart this name. This happens in the Jewish tradition. Or sometimes they write Hashem. Do we know what Hashem is? It's the Hebrew for the name. Ha is a definite article. Shame is the name, so Hashem means the name. So you don't actually write Yahweh, but you write these other words in place of it. Now, and I want to end on this. By and large, this practice is not carried over into the New Testament. Right? Christians today 
can say the word Yahweh. In fact, in scholarly circles, that is the common way of referring to the God uh, of the Old Testament is Yahweh, and there's no problem with saying it. It's not a problem in the early church, and yet, and yet, so there seems like there's a big difference that might suggest that there's this big chasm of relevance between this commandment and us today. And yet, think about the way the New Testament treats Jesus' name. Okay, think, it's just a couple quick quotes. Hallowed be your name, thy kingdom come. Hallowed be your name. The mission of the church is to make Jesus' name known in John 17, 6. One is baptized in the name of Jesus in Matthew 7, 22. One is healed in the name of Jesus, Acts 3, 6. One believes in the name of Jesus, John 3, 18. Salvation is in the name of Jesus in John 14, 13. Or excuse me, Romans 10, 13. And one prays in the name of Jesus in John 14, 13. What I would like to suggest is that there's actually not as much of a difference as we would like to think but that the, some of the underlying ideas, beliefs, and theologies about the specialness of Yahweh's name and its sacredness and this, this fear about misusing it were simply transferred to the name of Jesus in the New Testament. So it's not all that different. Now, we can say out loud the name of Jesus. We haven't gone that far. But I also would like to submit that I think the church has become too familiar in its use of the name of Jesus. I don't think we have to go back to not saying it or, or writing J-E-U-S or something like that. Um, but I do think we should think twice about how we use the name of Jesus, not only in liturgy, but I think, again, what's on my mind these days for good reason, our current political debates and how God's name, in particular Jesus' name, is attached to policies and platforms in a way that I think easily could be argued is a violation of the third commandment. I want to pause here. I think there are some good questions to answer. Let me entertain them in the break, and we're going to reconvene in five minutes for the second shorter half of today's session. So go fill up on coffee and dessert if needed.